You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So Jay, you told me just before we started recording that you just got back from a trade show and you don't look like you have the plague. So you didn't shake too many hands, kiss too many babies, rub too many elbows. No, I have 2019 vibes going. No, it was great. So (laughs) out here on the West Coast, so the trade shows, if you've noticed, they've been diminishing in size for years, if not decades. Mm -hmm. So at the Anaheim Convention Center, right next to Disneyland, they've combined like a medical device show, a packaging show, an automation show, and... There were two others. It was like five. It was it was great. And it's good because there were technologies. I want to see automation. I wanted yep. to see packaging. Sure. Who and so what was really neat was we walked the floor. It was quick. There's some packaging stuff that we want to um, not move away from, but move towards better solutions. Like this one product, it's a corrugated, it looks like corrugated metal mm-hmm. and it's called core pack. Using that instead of foam, foam's expensive, foam's hard to work with. We have a, what is it called? Expanded polystyrene, like the cheapest foam you can get. You break it. There's little beads. It's just nasty stuff, you know? Yeah, I do not like polystyrene. Oh, it's terrible. So this corrugated, hard corrugated board, we can use that as like a space filler, especially on the tops of our packages that don't need, I don't want to say impact, but like if a package is going to get dropped nine times out of 10, it's not going to be on its top. It's going to be on its sides or definitely its bottom. So when we package different products, like for example, different thicknesses of top plates or pallets, at the end, we need to fill a void in the box. Paper's not great. We've done it. It's fine. We haven't had any damage in literally years. But if we could just put something in on top that was corrugated and a little bit more firm, I would feel better. Resistance. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that was a neat thing. But the big takeaway. So I have wanted for the past Oh man, no, it's beyond when we moved in. I've always wanted a vertical lift module storage system because I know that when you store things, and this goes to a lean principle of the waste of excess inventory, not inventory, excess inventory, we get rid of our excess inventory. We don't bring in excess inventory, but the inventory that we need to keep, we don't want it to be a distraction or a bottleneck, or just in the way of us producing cutting-edge workholding products. And that's just our inventory. Then there's other like ancillary things like the, I opened a cabinet the other day, and there's our 18-volt saws and all our Ryobi stuff. And in the, the a shelf below it, it's the filters and oil for our air compressors. Like, Where does all that stuff go? And we've always put that stuff either in a maintenance cart If it's tooling, it goes into a tooling cart. If it's for the mills, it goes on the mill side. Lathes, we have these beautiful list of cabinets that roll. They go usually at the bottom. But that's the stuff that we just don't touch. We probably touch it maybe maybe one to four times per year. That Mm -hmm. needs to go into deep storage. Like We're talking carbonite. We'll thaw it out when we need it. And so looking at these vertical lift modules, are you familiar with them? Do you know what- Yeah, things like Cardex. Cardex, yeah, that's the brand that was there. There's another one, Modula, M-O-D-U-L-A. And just, they're the coolest things. Okay, so we show up, we're talking, we're there with both sales reps from two of those companies for well over two hours, I would say, total. And then what was really neat is I took two other guys with me down there. 
they came into the shop the next day and some of the employees were saying, well, how was it? Would you find out? These guys are like kind of raving about this capability. So yeah. I go up to a few guys, Alex, John. I, well, John, I said, hey, so did, did one of the guys tell you about the lift? He's like, yes, we absolutely need to do that. And the, before we went, I talked to another guy, Alex, and he's like, yeah, this is just not a great workflow. Even Juan is going, uh, like Juan is the dude in the shop that knows where everything is. Juan is getting to the point where he doesn't know where stuff is because we just have so much stuff. Mm. But these vertical lift modules, they're, well, the one that I'm looking at, it would probably be like either 16, 24, or 30 inch deep tray. Okay. We'll probably go about six feet wide and up to the clear height of our building, which is going to be about 18 feet. Woo. And I think the one that they quoted is 42 shelves that are four inch thick. Yep. And I'm going, this is the world's greatest invention. So we're talking about what machines can we move? What can we sell? We can locate it here. And then the cool stuff, like I, I can have my personal stuff that really doesn't belong in the shop. You can put like my, I don't know, my baseball card collection. I can put that on a shelf, on a tray, send it up to the top, and then it's locked where you need a password to access it. So such cool stuff. Whenever we're picking stuff, like we have our Kanban cards and we have barcodes on the backside for reordering, that mm -hmm. barcode could double as like, you scan it and then it pulls up that item to bring you that shelf. So I haven't been this excited about a technology in a long time because it's new. So yeah, that was really cool. I first saw that kind of thing, a vertical lift storage in Optimac, in, in the Optimax facility in Rochester, New York. And they had really big ones because they mm -hmm. were storing just absurd amounts of stuff. And I had never seen anything like that before. And it literally is a pallet pool. Yeah. It's a vertical pallet for stuff for all your stuff. Yeah. So yeah. did they give you any pricing info? Okay. So here's the principle when I was I'm podcasting from home right now, when I was driving over here, I was thinking, okay, there's a principle here that I've lived off of for several years. I need to like give it a name and I'm going to call it the double trouble principle. So because this is a new technology, we're not familiar with it. There's a learning curve to quantify that learning curve, I'm going to double the price. So of course, at the trade shows, they don't want to give you too big of a number to make you go away. But they said, yeah, this one with all the bells and whistles, 150K. And I'm going, wow, that's, that's a big chunk of change. When the sales rep stopped by yesterday, which was a really great response, he said, yeah, it's going to start at 150K. And I'm like, but wait a minute. They told me at the show, he's like, yeah, well, they probably left this and that out. Yeah, conveniently. But really, like I was thinking about when we brought on the CMM, which is a new technology for us, I bought it used. We picked mm -hmm. it up for 25K. Doubling that number in my head back at the time, would I be comfortable with bringing on a new technology that we need to learn and that learning curve? Would I spend 50K on this? Yes, I would. Great. But I don't think I would spend 100K on a CMM, meaning if I were to buy it used, I would not pay more than 50K. So there's something there. I'm trying to bake it. You're hearing it for the first time here. Yeah. But well, uh, the, the big difference between one of these vertical lift systems and a CNC machine at a similar price point is the CNC machine is going to make you money. Yeah. A Cardex sure. system is going to save you an undefined amount of time. Mm -hmm. And that time is money, mm -hmm. but it's got to save you a lot of time to generate that ROI. That's right. And so yeah. when I first saw one of these at Optimax, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I just stood there and watched it for a while. I just watched people coming on, checking bins in and checking bins out and watching the thing. 
drive up and down. And I thought it was super cool. It looked like something out of Star Wars. Mm -hmm. But realistically, for most of the stuff that we make and use, we don't have any small hardware components that need to be under lock and key. Mm -hmm. We don't have small high value items that need to be secured for inventory protection. If I was selling small high dollar items and we had finished goods on the shelf that could just walk out of the facility if they weren't locked up and we had $100,000 worth of inventory, putting it in a Cardex Mm -hmm. would make tons of sense. But if I'm really, if I'm talking about filling up my Cardex with half inch 832 screws, it's like, sure. Yeah. No, but (laughs) sure. That makes sense. I've been thinking about this because we were talking to a potential client for fulfillment services here, a client we already do work for, and we pitched them on the idea of moving some of their fulfillment here, but they also sell some things that we don't make. And they have some items that are relatively high dollar, things that are fit in the palm of your hand that are in the five to $700 range, mm-hmm. stuff that is valuable enough that in their current facility, they keep it under lock and key. They don't just have it sitting around. They don't have pilot boxes of these things sitting around on shelves. And they wanted to know what we offered in terms of secured storage options if they were going to store lots of that inventory in our building. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to know how would it be written into our insurance? How would we do stock takes? How would we verify inventory numbers? How would we store those more valuable parts? Like Mm -hmm. If I was doing fulfillment for John Grimsmo and I had 400 Norseman knives in storage in my facility, yeah, I'm not just setting those in a box on a pallet rack. Sure. And checking once a quarter to see if they're all there. Mm-hmm. Those are going to stay in some kind of locked container that has access codes. So I could definitely see the value of it. And it certainly would be interesting to have that capability. But at the moment, as much as I want one, and I've wanted one from the instant I saw one, oh, sure. the ROI for the kinds of parts we make is just not there. For you, you're... Oh, okay, so... Apples to apples, you have a bigger building, you have more raw land. It would, you would just buy a $20,000 steel building and put it up on a pad and store stuff. Yeah, we're already looking at adding on to our building. Very Um, cool. Not sure what the time frame is going to be on that, but certainly we have two acres of clear buildable land, Mm -hmm. which is. If I was in an expensive area, if I was in, a, if I had a machine shop in downtown Chicago where I was manufacturing somewhere in New York City, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, I've got 2,000 square feet. I'm completely out of room. Everything's jam packed. My machines are in here like sardines in a tin. Mm-hmm. And I need to condense all this inventory into tightly packed, flexible, vertical storage. Mm-hmm. The economics of it completely changed based on. The cost to rent per square foot, the difficulty of moving to a different location, there are all kinds of factors that could go into that obviously becoming a good investment with a quick ROI. Yeah. Where I am with what I have and the stuff that we make, it would be a boondoggle. It would be an immensely entertaining boondoggle. I would probably stand there and we'd write QR codes that would make it dance. Yeah. You know, like the Tesla dance where the gullwing doors come up and the lights (laughs) flash and it plays music. But it's not practical for me. But for you, I could see it more. Yeah. You're in California. You have less square footage. You don't have the ability to easily add on to your building as far as I understand. No. And you also have a larger volume of small, more valuable metal machined parts. Right. That yeah. you're making in-house. It's your inventory. You've got material cost and labor cost, machine time and all that stuff in those. Once they're good, mm-hmm. 
store them, be able to retrieve them quickly. And just the, certainly the, the part that's most attractive to me is go to one spot, mm-hmm. all your stuff is there. Yeah. The thing we just bought our solution, our Cardex was we just bought a bunch more pallet rack beams so that we can increase the vertical density of the shelving sure. on our pallet racks. Cause we have a lot of like small 12 by 12 by 12 or 14 cube boxes of hardware parts that are on the shelf. And if you've got a pallet rack, where you have got three big shelves, you're wasting a ton of vertical headspace in each shelf. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to be doubling up the beams on a number of our pallet racks to get more things closer to the floor to be in hand's reach to mm-hmm. free up deeper storage at the top of the shelves where you need a ladder or a forklift to get it. Anything we don't need often, it's all moving up there. Yeah, right. For me, it's really the justification for something like this is that because we are in a, well, it's like Japan, all the Japanese machines are really tight because floor space is a major consideration in Japan. California, not so much, but more than Indiana. And for me, it's converting square footage to cubic footage so that the square footage that you free up, you can place money-making machinery there. Um, Right. And that then, makes and sense. Th- yeah, that's the big sales thing. For me, from a lean perspective, I don't want my guys wandering and wandering all over the shop. Yeah. With these vertical lift modules, you can go up and you can start to type in like a Boolean search. I'm looking for a an air fitting. Type in fitting. There it is. It's tray 15, row C, bin D, E, F, G, and then row B, B well, however it works. And then you go and then you put eyes on it. It cuts down that inefficiency there. And the idea I don't know of using it to free up floor space to put money-making machines, if this allowed you to take three or four pallet racks that were inefficiently using your cubic space uh-huh. and condense all that into one pallet rack's footprint, and that gave you room to drop a new five-axis mill on the floor that was suddenly going to make a whole bunch more valuable parts, that's a slam dunk. Yeah. On the square footage to cubic footage thing, the first time... When I first started seeing 3D printers a, long, a while ago, and I was seeing cheap hobby-grade FDM printers, and then I saw higher-quality Stratasys FDM printers, and the first time I saw somebody printing with dissolvable filament so mm. they could like, print things with embedded gears and things and then soak out the filler yeah, and have like, a working wrench and stuff, that blew my mind. But when I first saw SLS, Selective Laser Sintering, where you are filling up the entire cubic volume of the build tray with powder mm-hmm. and laser sintering it and realizing that you can suspend layers of parts in the entire cubic volume. I was at a shop where a guy had a bunch of laser sintering machines and he was unloading one and he shook this big cube of powder out, put it in the cleaning tray, started knocking it down and filtering out the powder. And I was just gobsmacked at how mm-hmm. many little parts and they're fully supported. They're in, they're in, fully encased in powder the entire time. He had all these tiny parts and he actually was, in one case, he was printing a group of really tiny parts inside a printed mesh cage. So he could take them out and shake out all the powder and not lose the little parts. Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. He was was printing a (laughs) container. He was printing the parts in a container. Yeah. And I was like, that is brilliant yeah that is so cool and even as fast as my bamboo labs printers are the reality that i've got only square footage Mm -hmm. of the build tray the parts have to contact the plate right 
And in SLS and in multi-jet fusion, as far as I understand, it's all cubic volume. Multi-jet fusion, I think, uses a UV-cured liquid that's sprayed on and then cured, and they go in an oven and the parts get baked. The ability to put hundreds of small parts in one cubic build yeah. and run it for 24 hours, and all of a sudden you got 900 little parts. Right. That kind of stuff is amazing. And I think very, I, I think of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. You know, mm-hmm. Khan thinks very two-dimensionally. They beat him by thinking three-dimensionally and taking their ship up and down in the nebula. He's mm-hmm. like looking around for them on a single plane and they come down from above him and get him. Yeah. And that idea that in our shop spaces, the most underutilized space is vertical space. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's wild Yeah, how much right. vertical space is underutilized in my shop currently. Yeah. One of the cool things that they pitched me on about from the Cardix is they said they've worked in, well, they're a European company. So they've had to place these units in existing buildings. They may be old buildings. And if they can, they go out the roof. But if they can't, they dig a pit and they sink it down 20 feet. But the load station is about halfway up and then it's up for another 10 or 15 feet. But the majority of the storage is down. So down it goes the beyond the cubic footage of your building. You're using like, free atmosphere or free ground below ground level. Um, yeah. yeah, it's such a great technology. So. As long as your water table isn't too high, you're golden. Yeah, I know. Gosh, ours is on a hill. So Our shop has a running joke that we've always wanted to have bank tubes, the kind okay. that you screw the cancer together and stick it in, get sucked up the tube. Yeah. We want to have bank tubes to like send messages to different parts of the building and send parts to and from. Yeah. Like, oh, just stick it in the bank tube and pop it in the wall in the office and have it go, Willy Wonka style, all the way back to Bay 3 and drop off at Brian's desk. Yes. So we consistently get a post-it note that says, we need bank tubes. And it keeps showing up on our like our lean improvement suggestion boards. Uh-huh. Every once in a while, somebody re-suggests installing oh, bank man. tubes. Wow. <laughs> so that, okay, so we try and avoid, uh, we call them monuments in the shop. Like everything should be on wheels or movable, yep. but there's monuments like machines. So yep. our CMM has become a monument and it's in a corner. And it's away from some of the machines on the other side of the shop. I could totally justify bank tubes for that. Here's the first article, stick it in, goes over to the CMM room where someone will (laughs) inspect it for you and send it back. (laughs) That would be super fun. For us, it's obviously a running joke. It's a little piece of nerdery, but it's so fun to have a pneumatic tube and shuttle something through there and watch it go, whoo. Yeah. Oh yeah. Fly away. It's deeply gratifying. Well, you got to spend the money, right? So- why not go Otherwise, the government's going to take it. <laughs> okay, so doorknobs and bank tubes. There you go. Okay, so this is the sad reality is also at the trade show, they had this, it's a hanging shelf system that hangs from a standard pallet rack. And it looks like these kind of like deep storage. Maybe you see them in libraries sometimes where they have these shelves that are on tracks with a big mm-hmm. wheel and you crank the wheel and it moves laterally. Uh, mm-hmm. I could probably get you a link. But what it does is it allows you to create dense storage under an existing pallet rack where the widest gap is probably going to be like 24 inches. So you could squeeze in there, get something off the shelf, and then come out. Like that's the right financial move to make, but it's just not that cool. And sometimes it's just, I have to kick in JWI, Jay wants it. And yeah, a vertical lift system, vertical lift module is like, the right choice for the long term. 
but it's so not. Are you looking like, at? Are you looking at the carousel style where everything's no, on a? Con- no, no. The carousel ones, they're older. They have some inherent problems. They have load balance issues. So ah. lift modules, they come in and they pick it up. It draws it back into a cent- central like a shaft, like an elevator, yep. and it places it either on a shelf to the f- aft, well, on both sides. Right. So yeah. It's cool. It seems like you get it. greater density of storage with the carousel because you don't have to have a central free column. That's you don't true. Have to have a triple column size. Yeah, but I could clearly understand the implication of off balancing that carousel by unevenly loading weights on yep. different parts of the shelf. So the vertical lift module, those are interesting. I think they're better than a carousel because the carousel has fixed, I, I guess, storage heights. The vertical lift modules, you put stuff on it, you don't even think about it. As it's retracting, it, there's a light curtain that measures the highest object. Then it goes and it places it in the appropriate shelf. So you may have five shelves that are only taking up four inches. And then that sixth shelf has like something that's 18 inches tall. It parks it. And then the next one above that will be four, five, six inches. So it, it has really high wild. density. Yeah. So you may have a carousel that doesn't take up as much square footage, but your density is down because you have to say, you know what, we might put something here, like a tray of fasteners, but our storage gap is 18 inches, regardless of the height of the tray on the carousel. So that's why VLMs are preferred over carousels. Interesting. Yeah. Have I sold you yet? All the things you never think of. Yeah, I mean it's that's this is what they do. It makes sense. I don't like that it takes up, you know, what it hold on. I had the document here. It's like 115 inches by 90 something inches. It's a big footprint. And you can change that. You can't really change the depth. The depth is dependent on the width of the tray. Like they have like a Modula has a mini VLM and it maxes out at 16 inch depth of trays, which should be good until the day we have like an 18 inch product that we want to put in there, then we're then I'm kicking. The travels on this mill are big enough until they're suddenly not. Yeah. Ain't that the truth? What about you? So you have new employees, you're possibly bringing on new products. What's the latest? Yeah, actually just got a signed job offer back today from a new employee who's going to be starting here in April, actually. And he's currently working for a firearms manufacturer out west and has experience running horizontals and lathes. The shop he's working in does lean approaches to stuff. So he's familiar with a lot of the terminology and the process, mm-hmm. but he's relocating to Indiana for personal reasons. And he came and toured our shop last year, really liked it, thought it was really neat. And when he let me know that he was actually moving back this way, he asked if I'd consider making a position for him. And I don't know him that well, I've met him a couple of times, but really liked him. He seemed very mm-hmm. conscientious, understood a lot of what we were doing when I gave him a shop tour. There's a clear difference when you give somebody a shop tour and they like a lot of what they're seeing, but they don't understand it. Okay. And yeah. when they see stuff and they go, I recognize that. I yeah. know what that is. We've been having a lot of talks in our morning meetings over the past week and a half on the concept of Kanban. And one of the interesting things that Suzaki brings out in that book that I've been reading, which I hadn't really recalled seeing stated this way anywhere else, is that one of the goals of Kanban is to get enough Kanban cards in circulation to level out production, to avoid parts shortages and get the process moving, Mm -hmm. and then start taking Kanban cards back out of the process. The goal is to operate the process 
smoothly with the minimum number of Kanban cards and minimum number of Kanban events. Mm -hmm. And that idea that like a subtractive Jenga tower, you build it up, it stands still, it's stable. All right, let's start taking Kanbans back out of the system. And do we need to shrink the line down? Because the whole idea is anywhere in the process you have Kanbans, Kanbans identify either raw materials, subcomponents, or WIP. That's what gets moved by Kanbans. You pull a Kanban, you retrieve a Kanban, you're moving some part, some thing, or you're placing an order to an outside vendor for something to come in. And the more Kanbans you have throughout a process, the more components, subcomponents, and WIP are in with those Kanbans. And by thinning that out, taking the cartilage out of the joint, you reduce and reduce and reduce and reduce, and then can physically shrink the space between stations, reduce the amount of racking required, and then you build it up and then slim it down until you start to encounter parts shortages or process breakdowns again. And he says, this is the thing people don't understand about Kanban. Mm -hmm. Kanban is not primarily an inventory management tool. It is primarily a tool for locating and identifying process problems. Mm. The Kanban is the thing that as it moves, it's the marker that you observe to locate where the problem's happening. Yeah, It's just right. like doing like a smoke test in a negative pressure space. You're like, all right, sure. I'm going to pressurize the space, release some smoke in it. Let's see where the smoke is going. That's where our leak is. Let's yeah. see how the Kanban cards are moving. And as we take more and more of them out, do we need this one? No, pull it. Everything's running fine. This one, we've got 10 bins Kanban for this various process. Let's pull these two. Still running? Totally fine. Let's pull these two. Still running. Let's pull that one. Huge breakdown. What's going on with that? Yeah. Is our bin size wrong? Is our lead time insufficient? Is there a material or a machine setup issue upstream that makes us unable to just in time that part the way we should? It highlights those specific problems. Yeah. And it's so interesting to me to read somebody who clearly did not just stumble into Kanban the way I stumbled into Kanban, which is like I saw a Kanban card one time and I'm like, oh, wow, that's a great idea. I should do that. It should have the part number and the minimum on hand and the amount to reorder and the vendor. And it should have all that information and I should put it in the bin. That way when we run low, I don't have to remember where this came from. I can just take this and go trotting off to my laptop, fire off an email, not even a PO, just an email and order more of these things and then leave the card in a tray on my desk. And when the shipment comes in, put it back with the stuff and put it back on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And that's a super low resolution, one dimensional approach to Kanban cards that misses this entire other layer of their utility that Suzaki is focused on. Wow. Well, Kanban roughly translates, it doesn't directly translate, but it's signal or sign or signboard or just a, like a highlighter, like a flag. Yeah, um, it's an that indicator. Type of thing. An indicator, yeah, all those things. What does that look like? Okay, with this extra information or knowledge of the power of a Kanban, what does that look like in your facility? What's going to change or improve? Well, we've been talking, normally when we talk about Kanban cards, when we talk about Kanban, we mean Kanban cards. Uh -huh. And that's usually a small index card or smaller laminated card with information and or a scannable code on it that tells you something or triggers an action when you scan it. But he points out that Kanban does not have to be cards. A lot of Japanese factories use Kanban cards. And he actually had a picture of what he called a library, which was essentially the Kanban sorting and return station for a factory that had 
over 10,000 active Kanban cards on the floor throughout their entire facility. They had a whole sorting machine and what looked like a card catalog for all these Kanban cards. So they could track everything that was on order, everything that was expected, everything that was getting restocked, and the Kanban cards would go back out to the floor was this whole system. But the idea that a bin can be a Kanban, that a storage rack can be a Kanban, anything that gives you at a glance visual management that triggers production uh-huh. can do part of that Kanban function. And we've just been rearranging a bunch of our workstations around our sewing area and our subcomponent assembly area back in Bay 3. And what I really wanted to do, one of our main goals was to rearrange the seating and the orientation of the bench line, benches to improve the sight lines so that the bench where you make a component and the shelf where those finished components get stored ready for the next workbench to utilize them, that's always easily visible to you. Mm-hmm. So that you can just, you can be sitting there making parts and you can look at the shelf and immediately see from the number of bins that are full or empty. If we put 50 parts per bin, you can mm-hmm. go, okay, there's four bins full. We've got about 200 parts. That'll be good for the rest of today. Or you can look at that and go, we're down to one bin of 50 left. I need to make more of those. Yeah. And right now, everything's kind of driven in our ERP by demand planning. It looks at jobs we have scheduled, calculates the number of subcomponents those jobs need to have available to consume to make the complete assemblies, and then recommends building the subcomponents. But even there, in real time on the shop floor, the people, if you don't think to go look in the ERP for demand that may have just popped up, Mm -hmm. looking around and understanding that the visual controls of seeing the bins or seeing the racks, we actually... In Suzaki's book, he used a picture of a cafeteria tray rack, one of those wire racks that just takes lots and lots of shallow metal trays. Yes. And a company was using those. I know Ariel Eisen at Austere Manufacturing uses those. We use those as well. We have some sewn parts and we develop 3D printed brackets that clip into there that hang bars of these sewn parts, 50 per bar. Yep. So I can easily walk by and in 10 seconds, take a total inventory in increments of 50 of- how many of those parts are on the shelf. Yeah, And that's so helpful for the employees to be able to look at that and immediately say, we're getting low on that. I need to go look for a job that may have just been created and scheduled to build more of those because I can see we're going to need them. Yeah. That's the true power of Kanban cards or a Kanban approach. Like what we used to do when we were pretty tight on, would it have been labor? Yeah, it would have been. We had part of our Google tracking something. Google Analytics is we had a map that I would put up every morning on the big display in the shop that showed real-time visitors to our site. And you could click in or it would give you a list below that of where they are on the page, like what page they're on. And you could see, oh, there's a guy in Minnesota that is on our site. Oh, he's been there for two minutes. Oh, he's still there. It's six minutes later. Oh, he's on our, he, oh, he's checking out. And you could actually go in and you could see that I'd been watching him for a few minutes. He was on our smart back page. He went to our gasket page. And the guys in assembly are like, I'm going to start packaging up. I'm going to make a box for our 914 starter package. And I'm just going to get stuff. And sure enough, within two minutes, hey, an order comes through. You hear it through the order announcement email. And it was the coolest <laughs> freaking thing in the world. But it was that approach. It was a Kanban approach. This is a sign. This is a signal. That something that action needs to take place, not just a little three by five card. That's really cool. And so, the benefit of thoughtfully and in iterations changing and testing and right sizing 
all of our storage bins for all of our common subcomponents. Mm -hmm. Like if we put everything in all the same size medium containers, then one bin might be half full, but that's only two days worth of inventory of that part. Yeah. Right. And another bin might look almost completely empty mm -hmm. and that's eight months worth of inventory. Yeah, right. And so it completely throws off your ability unless you have in your mental Rolodex the complete list of all the parts that consume that subcomponent, which even I at this point don't clearly have. Mm -hmm. I have it for most of the things in the shop, but there are certain things I look at and go, that looks low. Do we need to reorder those? Yeah. Like how many of those do we actually have? And then- yeah. Yeah, but right sizing the bins makes it like, oh, and I, what I would love to do is actually start to calibrate some of the bins mm -hmm. and put like a green, yellow, red on them and say, green, when we fill this up, we always order these 6,000 at a time. When we fill it up and it's above the green line, we've got 5,000 plus in the bin. The yellow band is our 2,000 to 4,000 band. And then as soon as we drop below 2,000 units, we're in the red, we need to reorder. Yeah. And that would make it so easy to just walk by and scan and go, good, 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 low. Hey, let me ask you this. See if you've run across this in the book you're reading. So I've kind of just accepted that one day our physical Kanbans will be replaced by some higher technology digital solution. But you said that this in this company, there were literally tens of thousands of Kanban cards and a sorting system. Did the book talk about that instead of staying like tactile? Let me throw in this story. So we have our Pearson boards, which were named by Saunders and Grimsmo. So the Pearson boards were magnetic boards that showed you the process along the top and then the component along the left side. And then the pins move from left to right. It's shown oftentimes. But I showed it to John Saunders in 2017 when he toured our shop two shops ago, and it kind of took off like wildfire. We just called it our status boards, uh, affectionately called it our Pearson boards. We've since digitized that probably mm -hmm. four or five years ago. Well, guess what? They keep crashing. And one of the things that I said that was an advantage to a mechanical magnetic Pearson board or status board, whatever you want to call it. Was that power it, goes out and we're still rocking? Yeah, exactly. And it never needs to be like there's no software issues. There's if we don't pay the server bill or anything like that. And now we're experiencing that pain of a digital solution. So guess what? The backup solution right now is our old Pearson boards that were in storage. They said, "Hey, we're, we've moved away from this. Can we throw them away?" Actually, no, because something in my gut tells me we might go back to this. We kept one on the board because when we do tours. We say, hey, this is how we used to do it. We keep it up as a demonstration. Uh, but that you can do this. It's just Excel spreadsheet. Spreadsheet, get it printed at your local print shop, two, five bucks, something like that. So we're experiencing that pain. And that's why I asked, because are we going to go to a digital Kanban solution that is going to create pain and deeper pain in two, five, 10 years when it crashes and we lose all our data? That's why I asked that. Gotcha. So in Suzaki, he has diagrams of shop flows showing where the material moves, where Kanban's move. This is a picture of a, the caption actually says, thousands of supplier Kanban cards waiting to be dispatched in a Japanese automobile factory. And it said, this figure shows the dispatch room in this factory. There are more than 10,000 supplier Kanban cards circulated corresponding to 97% 
of all items purchased outside. Mm. Because of the volume of cards, an automated sorting machine is used to dispatch Kanban cards to suppliers. And then the last sentence of this paragraph is what blew my mind. The amount of line side stock in this assembly plant is about three hours. Wow. Okay. So they're keeping three three hours hours. of on-hand inventory (laughs) and dispatching Kanban cards multiple times a day to replenish that line side inventory. Yeah. And I'm like, three hours? I think we move fast and nothing in our facility is managed on a, we keep three hours of inventory. Now, certainly some things are. We build a lot of things right when we need them. Yeah. But the idea that their Kanban system is that responsive. Mm -hmm. The flip side is a Kanban system like that is very, very intensive of other kinds of energy and time and attention and cost. Mm -hmm. Sure. Whatever your mechanical sorting machine is, it needs to be greased and maintained and kept running. Like It's not going to crash when the power goes out, probably. But in the absence of a digital ERP, you normally end up relying on some kind of network of people to be a human ERP. Yeah, right. And that has its whole own issues. Yeah, they're, they're, it's problematic on on different ends of the spectrum. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. I've been enjoying this chapter on Kanban. And he has the thing we're talking about, taking things out. As mentioned before, the Kanban system functions as a means to control production as well as to improve factory operations. Since Kanban is merely a tool, the number of Kanban cannot be determined by fixed formulas. The point is that Kanban should be used to help expose problems in factory operations. In order to do this, the number of Kanban cards should be reduced as much as possible so that inventory levels are reduced and problems are exposed for improvement. Mm. If we have a line with stable processes, we should start to remove one Kanban card at a time from the system. Mm. Since each card represents a predetermined quantity of a certain part in a container, we can reduce the level of work and process inventory of that part by reducing the number of Kanban cards circulating. Yeah. As long as we do not experience line stops due to part shortages, the number of Kanban cards can be reduced gradually until we hit a problem. Yeah. And when the problem has been exposed, we should determine its source by asking why. Yeah. Gosh, that is so golden. And it's so concise. Yeah. You've got a stable process. It's got work and process in it. Start taking that out until the problem surfaces. Then don't just throw Kanbans back at it and say, I guess we need more, we need more meat, more right. buffer in the process. Yeah. Go, okay, we're going to drain this pool until the little baby alligator that's hiding in the bottom of the pool surfaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're just going to pump the water out, pump the water out, pump the water out until we find the rock. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then go, why is this here and how do we solve it? And once it's solved, we keep pumping the water out and pumping the water out until we find the next rock. Right. He had a really good illustration early on in the book of a pond with a rowboat on it. And there were all these jagged rocks below the surface of the water. And the water was all the excess inventory. And it was covering over these rocks that were Machine downtime, improper setup, defects, staffing issues and absenteeism, bad parts coming in from vendors, all these problems. But the company was sort of floating above those problems, Mm -hmm. not functionally doing well, but those problems weren't clear Yeah, because they were just lost in the wash of all this excess inventory. 
if you suddenly found 500 bad parts, but they got made four months ago and you don't know who ran them or even which of your machining centers they were run on because right. it was so long ago, then you just take them, you put them in a dumpster, you write it off and all the information is so disconnected. There's no immediacy to it mm-hmm. and you can't feel the pain of it. Yeah. That's good. That's really good. So yeah, this book continues to be just about the best $4 I've ever spent at a used bookstore. That's amazing. (laughs) I am loving it. My employees love it less than I do. Well, I was going to say it's your role to read it and distill it down, put the stuff that applies into practice. Yeah. I'm certainly not spending my time doing long read-throughs. Like I read to them that exact section I read to you. I've got a bunch of post-it notes and bookmarks in this book now. That's great. And it's clearly going to be the kind of one where I'm going to come back to it and see it again with fresh eyes after I've taken another six months. Yeah, very common. Yep. I think we should wrap. In the next episode, I hope to have some lathe updates. I'm excited to hear those.